So um, we've been underway for about four months now with book by book. Some of you are actively trying to, to read along, trying to read a book of the Bible each month. That's great. As I've said a number of times, some of you maybe don't have the opportunity or the possibility to do that at this point in your life. Don't, don't worry about that. You can still enjoy these overviews of a book of the Bible each month. That's, uh, that's something I'm happy to offer, whether you're getting the chance to read along or not. Let me uh, reiterate what I've said to those who are trying to read. Uh, I think... I think reading the Bible has, has been difficult uh, for people in recent times. I understand that. And as I said last month, I don't want to be somebody who, who lifts a rod to, to beat you about that. Rather, I'd be somebody who wants to encourage you. So if you're somebody who's tried to do this, I, I'm going to guess that at least one person is here who, who heard me talk about this in December, who started with me in January and said, yes, I'm going to do this. And it hasn't quite worked out as you'd hoped. Don't worry about that. I'm not, well, I, I don't know about that. But even if I did, if you came and told me, listen, I tried this, Christoph, it hasn't worked out as I'd hoped, I'd be saying, well, don't worry about that. Get back on the bike. Try again. So if you're somebody who started reading and you read maybe for the first couple of months and you missed April altogether, don't worry, start reading with us in May and see what the, the Lord has for you there. If you're somebody who hasn't even started yet, if, if you maybe don't even know what I'm talking about, do make sure you get one of our, our lovely book-by-book -book brochures. Get a chance to, to read in there a, a little bit about the plan, a little bit of help for how you might get involved. You'll see there which book we're reading each month, uh, and when the time is right for you, uh, the Lord will use that to draw you in to reading his word. By the way, for anyone who's watching at home and isn't able to be in the building with us, whenever we talk about book-by-book -book resources, we're happy to try and share those with you, so we'll put them in the resources section on Church Suite, but if you ever can't find anything you're looking for, just get in touch with us in the church office, and we'll share those with you. So, Ezra Nehemiah, grab your poster and have, have a quick look. Uh, as, as I've maybe said to you before, these, these posters tend to go hand in hand with, with videos. I, I showed one video, can't remember which month it was, but just as a way to familiarize yourself with these brilliant resources, I, I showed you one video. If, if that Ezra Nehemiah poster uh, it's, it's quite small, obviously, the way we've printed it, I understand that. If, if you're somebody who relies on glasses, you'll need your glasses to, to get a good look at it. But that, that overview, there's a, a video that goes along with that. Uh, watching that is a, is a 10 minutes very, very well spent. One thing I loved about the, the video and the poster is two things straight away that we learn. One is that Ezra Nehemiah is one book of the Bible. I don't know if you knew that, but it, it started out as one book and was only later divided into two. That's why we're dealing with it together as one this evening. The, the second thing that I find very helpful about the book is that it breaks it down into different sections. 
when you hear the title Ezra Nehemiah, you tend to think, oh yes, I've heard of Ezra, I've heard of Nehemiah. But if you look at the poster, you immediately see that there's at least a third significant character, and that's Zerubbabel, and that he comes in before Ezra and Nehemiah. So this evening, I, I want to do a couple of things, pretty much the same as I always do when I introduce a book, in book by book. First of all, I want to give you a brief overview. So I want you to understand broadly. Now, I'm covering, what is it, 22 chapters, so it's only ever going to be a pretty, a pretty quick overview. But I also want to, to whet your appetite. I want you to be inspired to have a go at reading these books for themselves. So I never want to say all that could be said about Ezra and Nehemiah. I want, I want you to have a sense that, oh, I'd like to read that for myself. Okay? So, but, but by the way, this evening, I think those two things, the outlining and the inspiring, I hope will come together. Let's, let's place Ezra Nehemiah in its context before we begin. I don't know if you know how the Old Testament is structured, how the books of the Bible e even fall. I, I haven't planned this in my sermon notes. Have a, see if you can find the contents of the Bible that you're using. So, if you're using the Pew Bible, if I'm gonna hope that there's a, a content section in there. The way the Bible works, if you start at the start of Genesis and just keep reading straight through, in one sense, that's a continuous narrative historical thread there's a wee bit of overlap as Chronicles represents some of the, the stuff that's happening in the, the periods of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings. But other than that, if you just keep reading, it's a chronological thread until you get to the end of Nehemiah. The, the material in Esther is coterminous with some of what we're reading in Ezra and Nehemiah, but it happens in a different part. Uh, it happens in a, a more remote part of, of the empire. So, so what I want you to understand, the first thing to say is we're, we're reaching, in terms of timing, we're reaching the end of the Old Testament. All those other books then that follow are either poetic books, which aren't particularly time-bound, in some cases, or once we get to Isaiah and through to the rest of the Old Testament, those are the prophets who are bringing their message from God to God's people during the times that we read about in, in the likes of Ezra and Nehemiah. So my point is simply this, we're coming to the end of the Old Testament story, and it's very important that we understand that. So, if you know anything about how the, the, the story ends in the Old Testament, you'll know that God's people have gone into exile. We, we might call them a nation in decline. A, a super military, a, a superpower military machine, Babylon, has battered them. And it's, it's left their city and their temple a mound of rubble. Folks, I don't say this in any way to trivialize, but I think if you're looking for imagery in your mind, 
of what Jerusalem and Israel feels like, I don't think Ukraine, modern day Ukraine, would be a bad image to hold before you. These people have been pounded. Many have lost their lives. Their infrastructure's ruined and they've been dragged off into exile. All of that has happened. Actually, by the time we're reading about in Ezra and Nehemiah, that's already significantly in the past. It's now about 120 years later and some Jews are, are back in Jerusalem and they're trying to piece things together. And we shouldn't imagine that that all happened overnight and that the, the rebuilding occurred in the space of months or even years. This is the work of decades and it's not going very well. These people are hanging on by their fingernails and it's into this scene that Ezra arrives. So as we remember that, I want us to remember that this is a unique moment in the history and the development of God's people, Israel. But on the other hand, I want us to say that it's simply one extreme case of a familiar story that's repeated over the centuries for God's people, Israel, and for God's people, the, the church, the body of Christ. God's people don't always have an easy time. Reading God's word shows us that they, they never have had and we should probably learn to expect that they never will have. Our identity is constantly challenged. It's constantly under threat. Sometimes we face um, hostile assaults. Sometimes it's a, it's a more subtle uh, kind of a smiling seduction. But always God's people live with opposition and live in difficult circumstances. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah speak of a period of recovery after one of these periods of devastation. Although the book is named after two characters, Ezra and Nehemiah, as I've already said, the books are structured around the work of three characters. And you'll notice there's a rubble, a first one before Ezra and Nehemiah. What we're gonna do is we're gonna structure our thinking about around these three characters and their work. We're gonna notice that God gave each of these three men a distinctive role in the restoration of his people. Zerubbabel, he's given a role to restore worship. Ezra, his role is to restore the word into the life of the people. And Nehemiah, uh, as we famously know, he's, he's there to restore the walls. Three W's makes it easy to remember. Let's look at these three in turn. Turn with me again to chapter one, where we get a little context for the emergence of Zerubbabel. We read it a moment ago. Ezra chapter one. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. I'm sure you were struck by that as we read it. Wasn't it incredible to have this pagan king saying, God's told me to build him a temple in Jerusalem. I love that. This sense that God turns the hearts of, of world leaders to his purposes 
when he chooses to. We're told that it's, um, it, it's fulfilling a prophecy. It's a prophecy that we can find in Jeremiah 25. In Jeremiah 25, we read that the Lord warned his people before the exile that he'd send them for 70 years to Babylon. And then verse 12 of Jeremiah 25, when the 70 years are fulfilled, I'll punish the king of Babylon and his nation and the land of the Babylonians. And, and this, of course, is exactly what happens. I don't know how well you remember this part of the story. God allowed Babylon to, to bring his people from Jerusalem and into exile. He allowed Babylon to hold sway for the times that it suited his purposes. But then he brought the Persian Empire to replace the Babylonian Empire. So what God's doing here is he's using a, a, a Persian army to defeat a Babylonian army, a Persian Empire to replace a Babylonian Empire, and he's using this shift in power to bring about the release of his people from their Babylonian captivity. So chapter one makes for really exciting reading. Cyrus is sending the exiles home. Brilliant. Really exciting. Chapter 2 reads a bit like a, a telephone directory or a database, but it's here that we first meet Zerubbabel. It's one of those great biblical names, isn't it? It's one of those ones that sticks with me because it's quite hard to say even. Uh, Zerubbabel, it's getting those, getting those consonants all together in the, in the one place. It's one of those names that can be distracting because it's hard to say and it sounds weird. But its meaning is really quite simple. Zerubbabel means somebody who is planted in Babylon. I'm going to assume that if there's been a 70 years of exile, this man's probably somewhere under 70 years of age. And that means he's, he's been born. He's been planted in Babylon. He's quite a unique kind of a, an Israelite, an Israelite who starts his life in exile. Zerubbabel had a leadership role in Israel at the time of this return from the exile, and he's the lead figure in chapters 1 to 6 of Ezra. His main job is to see the temple restored it's a little bit, uh, it's mostly about rebuilding the actual building, but if you read the narrative, you'll see that he also restores the priests to their work in the temple. So by the time he's put a building in place and he's put priests into the building, I'm going to say that his role is to restore worship. I'm not going to spend too much time thinking about with that with you this evening. I just want you to notice a very striking aspect of this book of Ezra. And it's evident in the two passages which we had as our Bible reading this evening. Still in chapter 1, have a look with me, verse 3. Any of it, so Cyrus is writing his letter. It's a letter that goes right through quite a large empire. It has, it has real reach. It's really significant. And he said, any of his people among you may go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, 
The people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Now I have a question for you. Where have we heard this before? Captives set free. Going to be with their God. Going to be in a land that he provides for them. And the locals blessing them with gifts as they go. Where have we heard this before? Isn't this the Exodus all over again? This time it's not Egypt, but it's Babylon and the empire. The Exodus was the single greatest moment of God's deliverance in the history of his people Israel. And now, as we begin to read this Ezra-Nehemiah story, we're, we're being invited. It's a tantalizing expectation. Is there going to be a new Exodus? How exciting. Before we read any further, we're going to pause there and, and keep worshiping together. We're going to keep on our Acts theme this evening. The, the book of Acts, as you know, is full of references to God's Holy Spirit. So we're going to sing and invite the, the Holy Spirit to be present with us. Holy Spirit, living breath of God. Let's stand as we sing. Take a seat. So we've met the first of our lead characters in this book of Ezra Nehemiah. Zerubbabel is leading the exiles as they rebuild their temple and their worship. And, and it's very exciting. It, it feels like a, a whole new exodus moment for Israel. Our second main character is Ezra. If you follow your poster, you'll see that Ezra's story begins really in chapter 7. So let's, let's flick to chapter 7, and let's read his introduction. After these things, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, okay, let's pause there straight away, because who of us knows anything much about Artaxerxes, king of Persia? This book of Ezra, it's split into two different time periods. I think the poster maybe has a wee arrow to, to signify that. When it moves you from the Zerubbabel box over to the Ezra box, it says another 70 years. At least 60 or possibly 70 years pass between the time of chapters 1 to 6 and chapter 7. So Ezra 1 to 6 covers the first return of Jews from captivity led by Zerubbabel. And Ezra 7 to 10 picks up the story at least 60 years later when there's a second group of exiles returning to Israel. So we need to notice that leap um, if we want to understand what's going on here. Back to Ezra. We read that he's the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, and quite a few other men, so much so that the biblical writer shares our impulse to summarize, and he calls him verse 6, uh, you know, after the big long list of names, he says, this Ezra, this one that I've told you about after all these names, this Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a teacher, well-versed in the law of Moses, which the Lord 
the God of Israel had given. The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. A couple of things about Ezra. He's well-versed in the law of Moses. That is, a man, he's a man who can teach God's people God's word. When the time comes for God to restore his people, he provides them with those who lead them in worship and also with those who lead them in the word. Folks, as I was working on this this week and I was trying to look for points of intersection between this ancient story of Ezra and Nehemiah and our, our story, the, the lives that we're living just now, I didn't feel it entirely a stretch to say that we're in a season where we need to be restored. And I think that's true of, of the church in, in the West in a very general kind of a way. But I'm going to, I'm going to make it more, more personal and more pointed for us. And I'm going to say that here at Hamilton Road, I hope it's true always that we're always hungry for God's renewal. But maybe this is a time when we could be hungering in a special way for his renewal. Uh, we've had the, the experience that all churches have shared of a pandemic together. We've had the added complexity of a, a change in ministry. And maybe, maybe some people who were with us two years ago are no longer here. Maybe new people have joined us in the time. We're coming through a season of transition. I think we're ripe for renewal. And it isn't a wonderful thing to see in God's word that when we're, we're ready for renewal, he brings us renewal in worship and in the word. Let's expect that. Let's pray for it. Let's invite those who aren't with us here to come and, and, and be expectant with us to be renewed in worship and the word. As I've read the book of Ezra, I've loved how Ezra reflects on his own experience of God's dealing with, us, with, with him. I want to offer this to you. It's quite personal to Ezra. It's probably not the biggest thing that's going on, but it's a lovely little thing. He talks about the hand of the Lord being on him and those who look to him. Did you notice that in verse 6? The king had granted him everything he asked, for the hand of the Lord was on him. I counted at least five more mentions in chapter seven and eight. We've already seen that he has favor with the king because of the hand of the Lord is on him. Look, look with me, chapter seven, verse nine. We see there that he travels well for the gracious hand of his God was on him. Look at chapter seven, verse 28. Ezra tells us, what God's hand allows him to do by way of leadership. I took courage and I gathered leaders from Israel to go up with me. In chapter eight, we read of Ezra's efforts to recruit new generation of priests. And he tells us verse 18, because the gracious hand of God was on us, they brought us Sherebiah, a capable man. And the narrator goes on to tell of over 200 new workers for the temple. A few verses later, verse 22, Ezra tells us 
that he won't ask Artaxerxes for escort because he's already told the king that the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. So rather than putting his trust in a king, he tells us, verse 23, we fasted and we petitioned our God about this and he answered our prayer. One final reference, chapter 8, verse 31, confirms that God did indeed answer Ezra's prayer and provide protection. On the 12th day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. Folks, Ezra is confident that God's hand is on him. How is that? Do you find yourself going around saying that to, to your friends? God's hand's on me. Do you? Ezra does. How can he be so confident? Chapter 8, verse 22. He says there that the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. Ezra knows his own heart. He knows that he looks to the Lord. And, and it's this, this surety that he has of his single-minded devotion to God. It allows him to say, because I'm looking to the Lord, I just, I just know a, a sense that his hand is upon me. Folks, it seems to me that those who look to the Lord can expect to see his hand on them in their everyday lives. They can expect to know his presence wherever they are, whatever they do. I've been, I've been reading a bit about this recently. One writer in particularly, particular was helping me to see this. If we are to be disciples of Jesus Christ, who really love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we've got to, we've got to start to believe that he's with us. Always and entirely present with us. That his hand is upon us at every moment of every day. He's not some sort of remote God that we encounter occasionally on a Sunday when the music moves us in church. No, it, it can't be that. We'll grow in our love for him, our affection for him, our life with him as we, as we begin to understand his presence with us, never leaving us, never failing us. Folks, it's, it's another area uh, where I've been inspired by this very unusual fellow pilgrim along the way, Jurgen Klopp, the manager of Liverpool Football Club. I heard him interviewed one time when he was talking. It, it wasn't, he, he's going through a great time just now, as you maybe know, but football managers tend to go through highs and lows. And this was at a time when his life, his football wasn't going quite so well. And he was being interviewed about how he coped with that. And he said this, whatever is happening, I know that I'm in extraordinarily good hands. 
What about that? Do you know that? That whatever is happening, you're in extraordinarily good hands. In my years as a pastor, I've heard many people testify to just that. And some of them have done it in the hardest of circumstances. Folks, that's my prayer for you. That whatever happens, whatever comes your way, you can say, I am in extraordinarily good hands. That's my prayer for you and for me. That we'll know that God's hand is upon us. I think it can be. It's a wee thing I've learnt from Ezra. We've seen how God is using Zerubbabel to restore worship. His hand was on Ezra as he bring in the word back to the center of the life of God's people. Finally, for a few moments, what can we learn from Nehemiah? Again, Nehemiah is well known for his work in rebuilding the walls. I'll leave that to you to read about. You, you maybe already know a lot about that. I'll leave that for you to read about. But I want to share again something a little bit more personal from Nehemiah. Nehemiah just doesn't stop praying. Let, let me show you. He prays about everything. We're in the book of Nehemiah now. Chapter 1. The story begins when Nehemiah is in the court of the king and he hears the news that the exiles, those, those who've returned from exile in Jerusalem, are still in trouble and they're suffering. They're in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem, we read, lies in ruins. And we read chapter 1, verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. So here's a guy whose heart breaks when he hears of the demise of God's people and he prays. And we read about him persisting in prayer. He's praying for days. And, and that's a, a wonderful picture of a person with a deep life of prayer before God. So he's given to persistent prayer. In chapter 2, we see something very, very different. Chapter 2, verse 4, we see that he's not only persistent in prayer, but that he also knows how to pray spontaneously. He's in the company of the king. The king asks him why he's down. Uh, the king asks him, verse 4, what is it that you want? And in a split second... Just the time that it takes in a conversation between someone asking you a question and you forming your response, he prays. That's what we're told here in the text. He's asked the question, Nehemiah says, then I prayed to the God of heaven. And to show the immediacy of what's happening here, he immediately reports, and then I answered the king. Have you ever done that? You've been with somebody the conversation's gone in a particular direction and you've thought, oh no, 
Lord, help me. What am I going to say in response to this question or this comment, this thing that this person said to me? I'm sure you have. Nehemiah, he can pray persistently for days, but he can pray in a flash because he knows, as Ezra did, that God's hand's always upon him. Doesn't need to be in the place of prayer. Doesn't need. To, it, it can happen anywhere in a conversation with the king. In chapter four, verse four, we see Nehemiah praying about the opposition he's facing. Hear us, our God, for we're despised. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. There's a similar prayer in chapter 6, verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, my God, because of what they've done. Remember also the prophet Noadiah and how she and the rest of the prophets have been trying to intimidate me. So his prayer is robust. It's not polite. It's, Lord, you know who our enemies are. They're enemies of yours. Lord, don't forget how they've opposed your people, and your work. In chapter 5, verse 19, Nehemiah prays that the Lord will remember him for all the work he's done for these people. In chapter 6, verse 9, he prays that the Lord would strengthen the work of his hands. As I've been showing you these, these references, these verses where Nehemiah is at prayer, I've skipped over one deliberately because I wanted to, to share it with you as a summary of Nehemiah's work and his spirituality. Look with me at chapter 4, verse 9. You'll see the chapter heading there that this passage is about opposition to rebuilding. If you know the story of Nehemiah, you'll know he's trying to build a wall and always there's opposition, always people trying to, to prevent the work from progressing. And in verse 9, Nehemiah summarizes his approach. How does Nehemiah live in the face of this opposition? How does he do his work? But we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Prayed, posted a guard. Wow. What a beautiful, balanced response to the challenge before him. Nehemiah responds with a combination of prayer and practical work. He does what he can, and he invites God to do what only God can. I found this a really inspiring part of the Nehemiah story. Bear in mind, Nehemiah is involved in a building project. He's managing a city renewal project. He's not rebuilding Jerusalem's worship. That job went to Zerubbabel. He's, he's not the one responsible for bringing the word to God's people. That job went to Ezra. He's building walls. And he can't stop praying. Isn't that amazing? 
Isn't this just a, a perfect illustration of what we were talking about this morning? With God, there is no sacred secular divide. Building walls isn't secular work. It's sacred work because it's God's work. And we need to know God's presence and blessing on all of our work. Folks, I want to begin to finish. I want to wrap things up by zooming out a little bit from these three characters. There's something very wonderful at work here. Nehemiah, it, when you read his story, you'll, you'll see that he begins his life really as a government worker uh, in the employ of a foreign king. That, that's who Nehemiah is. Then he becomes a building contractor charged with, with building these walls in Jerusalem. And as we've seen, he prays his way through his calling. His co-worker Ezra, well, he's a Bible scholar, a teacher, and he's mindful of God's hand always upon him. So Ezra works with the scriptures. Nehemiah works with stones and mortar. And in the Bible, these two men are put side by side. They're colleagues in the work. Their stories are weaved together, a seamless fabric of what Eugene Peterson calls vocational holiness. Neither job is more or less important or holy than the other. Nehemiah needs Ezra. Ezra needs Nehemiah. And God's people needs the work of both of them. We still do. Folks, I wonder what kind of a, a church we would become if we took this on board and understood fully and finally that there is no sacred secular divide. That everything that happens in this place, from the preacher at the front with God's word in his hand, to the sound guys at the back twiddling the right knobs, to the person who's prepared the, the coffee for after the service, to the person who clears the building on a Monday morning, we are all doing holy work. We're all brothers and sisters called to share in, in a sacred work that God has called us to. I, I hope we learn to see our life together in just that way. I want to finish just now pretty much where we started. In the opening verses of Ezra chapter 1, we read Cyrus's decree, and it stirred, it stirred a, a forgotten, a long forgotten dream of the people of God, one of captives set free, of people going to be with their God, going to in a land that he had given them, with the local people sending them on their way with gifts as they go. And we wondered as we started reading these two books together, are we to be expecting a new exodus? Is that what's going on here? Well, for those of you who are about to read Ezra and Nehemiah, spoiler alert. Put your finger in your ears. For a bit like match of the day, you know, when they give out the scores at the start and say, if you're going to watch this, let me show you where this story goes. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. In that second passage which we read, which comes near the end 
of, of this long confessional prayer of God's people, Israel. At this point, Ezra's back in the narrative. He's gathered uh, people. He's been preaching God's word. That they're responding in confession. Flick down to verse 36. The people's confession ends with an assessment of where they find themselves. But see, so this is the people returned from exile. They're back in the land. They're back in their city in Jerusalem. They've got a temple of sorts in place. They've got a priesthood. The word's been restored among them, but still, here's what they say. But see, we are slaves today. Slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so that they could eat its fruit and other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. We started reading the book of Ezra with the highest of hopes. Is this a new exodus about to occur? And by the time we get to, towards the end of Nehemiah, it's just heartbreaking. Yes, they may have returned from the exile. There's a, a temple been built. There's some sort of worship restored and the city's been somewhat rebuilt. But they still feel like slaves living in a land that's not their own. There hasn't been anything like a new exodus for these people. Friends, as we started to look at these books and as we placed them, we said that this, this is the end of the New Test, uh, Old Testament we're talking about here. And the truth is, the theme of disappointment runs right through this book. You'll see it as you read it. It recurs. It's not just at the end. It, it comes in waves. The people do go back to the city. They, they do repent in part, but it's never permanent. This is not the renewal we've been longing for. We need something more. If there's going to be a, a new exodus, it needs to be something entirely different and greater than this return from exile. We need a new and greater Moses. We need one to come out of Egypt. We need one who will fulfill the law and show us what that's all about. We need not someone to come and sacrifice a Passover lamb for us. We need someone to come and be the Passover lamb for us. A lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Until Jesus, any renewal movement in Israel will be half-hearted and temporary. But when he comes, he will set his people free. What is it he said? If the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Folks, let's read this part of God's word together and let's let it whet our appetite. Give us a, a hunger for Jesus, the one who will finally set his people free. Let's pray.